Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Caroline Liefers. And I'm Kelsey Henry. And it is our pleasure today to be talking with Philippa Campsey. Philippa recently published a brilliant article in Disability Studies Quarterly entitled, if I can anglicize his name, Charles Barbier or Charles Barbier, A Hidden Story, which substantially revises our understanding of the origins of raised point writing. Philippa, thank you so very much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. We have a lot to talk about today, but we want to start by celebrating the fact that you are an independent scholar, since I think independent scholars don't get nearly as much recognition as they should. How does historical scholarship fit into your life? Well, my undergraduate degree was actually in history. Um, I went to Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, and I studied history and biology and did an undergraduate thesis in history of science. So there is a, there is a link there. Um, I then worked in publishing and I uh, went back to university to do a master's degree in urban planning um, as a mature student. Um, and even became an adjunct professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. Um, and uh, the, the, the rest of my career was um, I, as a freelancer, a freelance researcher, um, writer, and editor. Um, but I've, I've done a number of historical, a lot of my research was historical, um, even um, for urban planning, looking into policy histories and things like that. I've always, I've always had an, uh, an interest in, in how things develop to the point where they are now. Um, I also have a fascination with France. I, I spent a year in France going to university. And uh, since 2010, um, my husband and I, my husband is Norman Ball. He's a, his, he's a historian, a historian of technology. Um, we try to get to, uh, to Paris once a year when travel was still possible. And so in 2010, we started a blog called Parisian Fields, where we explore all kinds of little uh, stories that we find, many of them historical stories. So history has always been part of my life, but uh, I'm new to disability history um, because of this story. Um, I just wanted to find out more about a particular person. I don't know if Caroline, you mentioned this already, but both of us have a background in the history of science and medicine. So we're both sort of familiar with the history oh. of science, history of medicine to disability history pipeline. Oh, <laughs> and I'm going to talk a lot more about that because I feel like it's um, a fairly common drift mm -hmm. between those two fields. Um, so it's really exciting to learn a little bit more about how that was your transit into disability history. But let's dig into thinking about and talking about your article together. So your article rewrites uh, kind of common understandings of the origins of Braille, uh, the Braille writing system or reading system in really exciting ways. And I'm wondering if you can give us the Spark Notes, uh, Coles Notes version <laughs> of the story um, that has been circulating more widely over the last 60 or so years. Um, what's the usual narrative uh, that's told? Well, I'm going to start with Once Upon a Time because so many of these stories are actually written for children. It's surprising how many children's books focus on Louis Braille. There are some for adults, 
but I would say they're far outnumbered by children's books. Um, and the story in those and most books, um, Once Upon a Time, there's a little boy called Louis Braille, uh, born in 1809. He loses his sight as a result of an accident and then an infection when he's about three years old. However, he's a very bright little boy and he gets the opportunity to go to a special school for blind students in Paris. He comes from a village that's uh, to the east of Paris. Uh, he, he does very well at the school. And when he's about 12 years old, he starts at the school when he's about nine, I think. He, when he's about 12 years old, uh, a military officer comes to the school to demonstrate a method of writing that he has developed to allow soldiers to communicate at night on the battlefield without lighting uh, a lamp that might betray their position. This method works quite well. It's very simple. Um, but uh, it's a bit cumbersome. It's a, it, uh, it takes a lot of space on the page. Um, there's, it's just letters or sounds. There's no punctuation. Uh, there's no uh, capitalization. You can't use it for numbers or arithmetical symbols or music or all of the other things that, that the students want to do with it, but they can at least uh, use it to communicate amongst themselves and to take notes. Louis, being um, a, a bit of a child prodigy, points out these errors to Barbier, um, and Barbier is not particularly receptive to them. So Louis, alone and unaided all by his little self, he goes and creates the system that we now use around the world today. End of story. Thank you so much for walking us through that. And I think it's so fascinating what you were saying about how the history of Braille's uh, life story has typically been delivered and framed for children, which does kind of influence the more fairy tale, like hagiographic yes. uh, impulses. Um, yes. and with, the, with the obligatory villain provided right, by, <laughs> you know, Charles probably always gets to play the villain. Right. Um, I've even seen a movie that they made of it, and he's wearing this ridiculous uniform that looks like something out of the Nutcracker, and he's really being quite offensive to to, to Louis Braille, um, saying, "Oh, you know, this you you can't be expected to do this, and you can't be expected to do that," which is, as we will see, complete fiction. Yeah, I remember you mentioning in the article, uh, kind of this David and Goliath archetype. Yes. So the, 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 the little boy was portrayed as sort of this little golden haired child and things like that. And there's the evil Barbier in his uniform. No, people really play it up. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear a little bit more um, about uh, how you became interested in this history. I can imagine if you encounter kind of this particular framing <laughs> of the relationship between Barbier yeah. and Braille, and as you start doing more archival research, you recognize the, dis the distortions or the peculiarities in the way that the story has been spun. I can imagine that that really piqued your interest as, as a historian. Um, and I know that we're going to rewrite a lot of the story that you told us uh, throughout this podcast conversation today. Um, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how you became so fascinated in this history to begin with. Um, were you very intentionally 
searching for the origins of raised point writing or did the story kind of just find you by accident? Oh, definitely the story found me. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm a newcomer to disability history, um, but uh, we were in Paris when uh, it was December, 2016. And my husband, as I mentioned, my husband, Norman Ball, is a historian of technology, and he had become very, very interested in the technology um, associated with communication with and among blind people. Um, there's a, a wonderful museum in Paris, uh, the Museum of Blindness, which is housed in um, the building. It's called the Association Valentin Aoui. Um, and this is, it's a, it's a training center for adult blind people. And it's right beside the school, the regular day school um, for school-aged children, uh, which is now known as the Institut National des Jeunes Aveugles, which means the National Institute for Young Blind People. Um, anyway, so my husband was there and he was absolutely absorbed in looking at all these amazing machines that they have, all kinds of different designs of machines to write in braille, some of which claimed that they could write in both braille and regular type and all kinds of things. Anyway, so I'm there and I pick up a book, um, uh, a French book by a guy called Pierre-Henri, um, La Vie et l'Oeuvre de, de, de Louis Braille. So the, the life and work of Louis Braille. I started reading it. Within a few pages, I encountered this guy, Charles Barbier. I'd never heard of him before. Um, but I thought, well, no, that's interesting because I, I didn't know much about Braille and I, I, I didn't know that he wasn't the one who had the original idea to communicate with raised dots. I assumed that that was his idea. Um, and the idea to communicate with raised dots in a way that did not attempt to reproduce the shapes of the letters of the alphabet. And he did not invent the tools for doing it. Um, the sort of the, the, the blunt punch that you use and the framework for creating these letters. That was Barbier. I've never heard of this guy. So I go to the, um, the curator of the museum, her name is Noel Roy, and say, what do you know about Barbier? And she sort of looks at me, says, are you interested? And I think, uh, I guess so. Um, and she said, well, in 2001, members of his family gave us a whole bunch of his papers. Um, she said, I've cataloged them, but nobody's really read them. And I thought, okay, I'm here. I don't see anybody else lining up to do this. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll take a look. I had no idea what was going to be in them. I, and I don't even know quite what I plan to do. I just thought, the book showed that there wasn't much known about him. And I thought, well, I can probably fill in some gaps here. Um, I can probably find out a bit more about him. Maybe I can, you know, flesh out the Wikipedia article or something like that. I had modest ambitions. And, but over time, um, I, I read the books, that there were books in there, there were letters in there. And also the, uh, the school, um, the Institut National des Jeunes Aveugles, in its library, there are a lot more letters. There were letters, written by Barbier to the school. And in the box, there were letters written to Barbier that were in his possession when he died. And I also found some more materials at uh, the uh, Museum of Louis Braille, Braille in uh, Kufre, in his birthplace. Um, with, so that's, a, that's another good source of information. And it was only 
gradually that I realized, wait a second, <laughs> the story's wrong. You've got it all wrong, guys. Um, it's, he clearly invented his, his method. He didn't invent it for the military. He invented it for blind people. Um, all sorts of things that happen in the story don't happen in real life. Um, and uh, so, but I, I, I never expected that I was going to sort of say, wait a second, complete, just about everything in that story is wrong and we need to rethink it. Well, this is incredible. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking all of the different pieces of the story that you were able <laughs> to rewrite for us. Let's start with a little bit of setting the scene, the background. Mm -hmm. The late 18th and early 19th centuries were already kind of a period of change for blind people in France, even before Barbier shows up on the scene. So can you tell us a little bit about the revolution in attitudes and education that was already starting to happen? Yeah, so France is among the first places that offers a formal education to blind people. Um, the name that I mentioned before, Valentin Aoui, um, took me a while to learn how to say that name. It's an unusual name. Um, he was the first person who, that we know of, who, who is commonly accepted to be the first person who uh, thought, wait a second, you know, we are, we are sort of wasting the lives of blind people. Um, before he started his school, if you were blind, um, you were okay if you had a wealthy family because they could uh, support you and get people to read to you. And some wealthy blind people were, did become quite literate simply by having somebody read to them all the time. But otherwise, most people, it, there was very little opportunity to learn any skills, to become independent, to earn a living. And most of them lived in abject poverty. It was quite dreadful. And Valentin, I was scandalized at the, the mistreatment of them. People made fun of them and bullied them and it was awful. And many of them had to beg on the streets. So starting with one student and expanding to create a school, uh, Valentin Aoui opened the school before the French Revolution. So early in the, the 1780s. Um, and it was, uh, it was actually uh, sort of favored by royalty and so forth. And he created a way to teach students to read by um, uh, making raised letters, so thick paper, and you needed a very special printing press to do this, to, to raise these letters. And they were cursive letters and the students had to, not even block letters, but cursive letters the students had to trace. Um, the books took up an enormous amount of space um, and uh, were very hard to produce. And if the students learned to read with them, that was one thing, but learning to write was, they couldn't produce them for themselves. Um, some of them, including Louis Braille, learned how to write in a way that sighted people could read, but they couldn't write in a way that other blind people could read. Um, that school, closed during the French Revolution. Um, the students were transferred to a hospital um, and that was a very dark period. Um, they weren't getting any kind of education. They may have had some rudimentary skills training at that point. And throughout that period, so not just the revolution, but also the Napoleonic period. The school was reestablished at the, about the same time that the monarchy was reestablished. So 1815 is Waterloo, Napoleon moves off the stage finally, and um, the monarchy is reestablished. And this had been 
a royal institution, so it is reestablished re in about 1860. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear a little bit more about Charles Barbier or Charles Barbier, his background and his early work on alternative writing systems. Well, he was born he was born in Valenciennes, which is in the eastern part of France. Um, minor aristocracy. Uh, he and two of his brothers go into the military. Um, the, the officers in the military were all members of the aristocracy. Uh, he spent about eight years um, in the military, but uh, when the revolution comes, you don't wanna be in the King's army. Um, and so he left. They estimate that about half of the officers in what had been the Royal Army left the country. A lot of them went elsewhere in Europe or to England, but Bobby went to the United States. Um, and at first I wondered why, and then I discovered he had a brother there. One of his brothers, another military guy, had gone there. So he, he goes to the States um, in 1792, um, and he first spends time with his brother in Baltimore, and then he moves to Kentucky. There are a couple of French communities in Kentucky. He earns a living teaching French but also um, teaching and practicing surveying, which is something that he would have learned as an artillery officer. He may have been in the United States for as long as 10 years. I don't know the year he came back. I, I have not yet been able to, to figure out exactly when he returned, but there was an amnesty for the people who had immigrated during the revolution. Um, Napoleon proclaimed an amnesty. So he was free to come back, um, but he had made enough money um, through, as far as I can tell, investing in land in, in Kentucky, um, that he was now quite independently, uh, well, he was independent. He was, I don't know about independently wealthy, but he was independent. He didn't have to work for his living when he came back, and he certainly did not rejoin the army. The people often place him in Napoleon's army, but he did not rejoin the army. Um, he followed his own passion, and his passion was alternative methods of writing. Um, he was fascinated by them. And the first, the first thing he created that I that was published, I guess, um, was a form of shorthand. Uh, very complicated. I have a photocopy of the book and there is absolutely no way I can make head or tail of it. I've tried. It's just far too hard. It's a very complicated method of shorthand. And there were already plenty of other methods out there that people were using. I mean, all the during the revolution, um, the uh, the records of the debates were taken in shorthand. There were there were, there were other competing ones that were very well established. But the end of the book contains a very interesting little appendix, in which he's moving in the direction of simplified writing. And in this appendix, um, he has created what he calls écriture coupée, which means writing with cuts. And the idea was that if you were somewhere and you didn't have access to pen and ink, you could still make a note on paper using a knife. And of course, before in the days before ballpoints and fountain pens and things like that, if you wanted to write, you had to have a pen and a bottle of ink. You couldn't, it was, it was, it was something that you might not have if you were out in the field somewhere or traveling. So he creates this idea of écriture coupée. You, you make a fold in the paper and then your cuts are um, oriented in relation to that line that has been created by the fold. So you could in fact take a note 
of something important and read it back to yourself if you use this um, if you use this method. And this sort of sends him in a different direction. Um, so in 1815, six years later, so the book came, that that the shorthand came out in 1809. In 1815, he publishes the book on which everything else is based. Um, they have a copy of it in the library, but you can you can read it yourself on Google Books. It's it's out there now. Um, it's got about 30 pages of text and 12 diagrams, and it presents 12 different forms of writing for a range of purposes. The very earliest forms are very simple forms of writing um, that are designed to for people to use if they have no experience of writing and no literacy, and they can they can try this as a very simplified way of capturing their thoughts on paper. Um, at the very end of the book, there's some very complicated ones which are intended for um, sort of a form of cryptography um, that could be used by diplomats to write secret messages. One, one of them looks like a musical notation on, on a stave, uh, five lines and these little dots, but they're, the dots are placed and connected in a certain way that forms the message. And in about the middle is one that involves raised points. The introduction to the book makes it very, very clear. This is for blind people to use. They can read it by touch. Um, and it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you think, what is the audience for stuff that can be read by touch? There's maybe a few officers in the field, and then there's a whole bunch of blind people. I mean, there's a much bigger market for this. Why anybody would ever think that um, you know, that, that it was invented for the military. But no, it was invented clearly and specifically for um, blind people. He he done a little testing, but it was a it was kind of speculative. He I don't know that he was absolutely sure that it would work. Um, but he he thought it was worth a try. And the illustration includes one of the tools required for producing these dots. Um, so he had also invented the particular equipment that was necessary. Um, and so th this little 1815 book is sort of where it all starts in the story. Fascinating. I love hearing about the materiality, like the technology, the knives, the, the tools <laughs> to make the race. Yeah. All of this is so fascinating. Yeah, Philippa, thank you so much for giving us a really comprehensive sort of genealogy of the way <laughs> RBA's thinking and actually production of different kinds of alternative writing systems, how they evolved over time. Um, one thing that we're both really curious about, um, and we know our listeners would love to know more about, why was Barbier so interested in creating alternative writing systems in the first place, and especially a phonetic system um, of alternative writing? And what did that have to do with his intended audience? Well, the, the book had many intended audiences, but the, the remainder of Barbier's life shows that his, what he really, really was trying to accomplish was universal education. He actually, if you'd asked him how he saw himself, he might've said it, he was an inventor. He might've said, I'm an educational reformer or a would-be educational reformer. 
And the introduction to the book sort of is where he is, is a bit of a manifesto. He felt very strongly that it took far too long to teach people to read. And if you have to work for your living, either on a farm or as an artisan or in a shop in a city, you don't have that kind of time. You can't spend years and years and years of your life learning how to write and read. Uh, so most of them didn't. Um, literature levels were very low. And writing is very difficult. And spelling is worse. Spelling is impossible. Um, and he felt that, that the part of the problem, and one of the, and this gets to the sort of his idea about writing phonetically. He said, part of the problem is our alphabet. It's full of holes, but it's also redundant. So you have, you have, it's, it, there are, um, you can create the same sound with more than one letter. So the sound produced by a K can also some, in some cases be produced by a C or a Q. Um, so there's redundancy in it, but there's also missing letters. So certain letters, you have to have combinations of letters to produce a certain sound, such as you know, CH or SH. Um, you have to have the two letters in order to, to represent the sound. He said, if we, the ideal alphabet would have one letter for each sound, no more, no less. One sound per letter, very simple. So he felt that, that things had become overcomplicated and he wanted to radically simplify things so that, and I don't, I mean, I, I don't think he was thinking that, um, you know, that the, the people necessarily needed to, to learn reading to the point where they could, you know, read Moliere or anything like that. I, he, he just felt that in their work, they need to be able to capture their thoughts and they need to be able to transmit their thoughts to other workers, to their family members on paper. And there had to be a simpler way to do this than the one that they had at the time. So he created the early methods in that book were created very specifically to be the simplest possible form of writing that he could come up with. Um, and uh, so you didn't have to, I, I mean, when you think of the, the writing at the time and reading his letters, I, I got to see lots of it. It's very complicated, it's very difficult. Manipulating a pen is difficult. Um, so he, he wanted to, to radically simplify um, the way in which people who didn't have access to formal education could at least note down things for themselves, for others, for posterity. And he thought, yeah, that, that, that won't take them too long to learn. They, they, they don't have to give up a lot of work time to do this. Thank you so much for that. I'm wondering how do you, how do these insights about uh, Barbier's history and kind of his motivations for developing an alternative writing system, which as you just described, um, primarily was intended for blind people, but also was in service of this larger goal of universal education. How do these insights change our understanding of Braille's origins and his motivations? And as I'm, as I'm talking, I'm curious about if Braille had um, any sort of a shared interest in universal education or if that wasn't a part of Braille's story at all. That's a very good question. I don't, I don't think he did, but 
I haven't read of all, all I, I read all of Barbier's correspondence. I haven't read all of Braille, so I couldn't really comment on that. What I did find interesting and a bit surprising is that Barbier's attitude towards the school um, was not what you might expect. He didn't see the students at the school as his ultimate audience. Um, yes, they were, they were blind students, but he thought relative to the people I'm really trying to reach, they're privileged, they're in a school. They've got years to learn all these skills in a school. Um, and he's, the people he really wants to reach are the people who don't have formal education. His idea was that in fact, the students would learn the method and teach it to other people. They would go out there and teach other people. One of the expressions that turns up a lot in his letters is um, either les aveugles de dehors or les ouvriers de dehors, which means either the blind people outside the school or workers outside the school. Those were the people he wanted to reach. He even had the idea that the students shouldn't shouldn't really bother learning this until they were just about to graduate. And then they would learn it just before they graduated. And he donated hundreds of sets of equipment, um, which he would give to them. And then they could take it out and teach it to other people. A completely unrealistic and utopian idea because um, of course, how are they gonna earn their living doing that? Um, they've been trained to learn, earn their living um, either as musical performers or skilled tradespeople or something of the sort, they weren't actually being trained to be teachers. So it's kind of, he had this funny idea that the school was being kind of going to be a clearinghouse for his simplified method of education and that the students, and it seems he had every confidence that the students were capable of doing this, were just going to take it out and teach it to everybody else. Um, he, he, he thought they, I mean, he had no, no, uh, uh, no hesitation in thinking that they could do that, um, but uh, that's not actually what the school was formed to do. So you can see how he uh, butted heads with the administration. Did he invest his own money in getting all of these sets created? Did he have a workshop going in his attic? <laughs> I mean, can you tell <laughs> us a little bit more about how these were actually generated? Right. The, he, there was a set that he displayed um, at, uh, they, were, they often had kind of um, expositions of new inventions. And at one of those, he says he displays his uh, tools and they were made by a blind person. At this point, Barbier is not living in Paris. He's living in Versailles. And so is this other person who creates the tools. And the three, the, there, were, there were three tools originally. Eventually, they were um, condensed to two. There was something called the tablette, which was basically the, the support on which you would put the paper. And it had grooves in it that would allow you to press in and create these dots. And then there's the punch that you use to create the dots. And then a thing called a guide main, which is just a, a guide. Um, to make sure that the dots lined up vertically. Um, so yes, I, I don't know he whether this fellow created them to his specifications or whether Barbie made a prototype and then somebody else made more of them. Apparently there were some accessory tools that could be used for creating the tools, um, all of which could be done 
um, by blind people. Um, he had he had in mind that they could you know it could be self perpetuating. They could they could carry on and create more of the same uh, as long as he needed it. But he did, out of his own money, pay for hundreds of sets to be given to the uh, the, the students. Thank you so much for the description of the technology. That's just fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about this method of writing that Barbier developed? Because there are commonalities with the Braille system that we recognize today, but it was different. So can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, the, the book that he wrote in 1815, all 12 of those methods are based on a grid. Well, two grids really, but the idea of a grid. At the time, um, the French alphabet uh, didn't commonly include the letter W. Um, it occurred in proper names, but it wasn't part of French words. And so it's a 25 letter alphabet, which fits neatly into a grid five by five. Um, so uh, you would have the grid and the, the uh, cells of the grid were numbered by row and column. So A is column one or row one, column one, um, B, C, D, E, you know, that row one, column five, all the way down to Z, which was row five, column five, which meant that the key to the system was the place of the letter in the grid. So if you, so everything had, two digits attached to it. A was one, one, Z was five, five, and everything in between. Um, so you could, those numbers could be replaced by um, symbols, simple symbols, a, a, a circle or a square or a triangle or something like that. And a combination of two of them would create a letter. Um, the one he created for blind people was the simplest of all because the number of the dots simply represented the place in the grid. So um, there were they there the dots were lined up vertically, and if you if you the number you if the letter you were trying to represent was in the fourth row and the second column, you would have four uh, vertical dots followed by two vertical dots. Together, those two formed the letter. So it was very easy to do. Um, you just had to count the dots. Um, it, uh, it, didn't, it didn't involve remembering which symbol represented which number. There were, it was actually numerical itself. So uh, it, it didn't take long to learn. It was very easy to learn. Um, and because you can, and you can sort of think about it and think, yes, I can see how, that, how you would do that. And if you, even if you don't remember where anything is, you can just count on your fingers to find out wh which, which two, no two numbers you need to represent any particular um, uh, letter of the alphabet. There was a second grid, as I mentioned, and that was the sounds of. So here he's getting, this is where he's moving to phonetic spelling. Um, that was a grid of, of uh, five by six um, because he's, he, identified 30 sounds in the French language, unique sounds. But the method was the same. Um, so you just, it was a, a, the two-part method and the dots and things, um, but you could spell things phonetically. Um, 
So you had a, you had an option. Everybody says, well, he and you know, it was all phonetic. Well, no, you you could use it for just regular spelling, um, everything normal that the students had already learned to do. They could do with this system just using the alphabetical version. That's so neat. We had built in kind of both options, right? So people had yeah. a choice, presumably, as to which one they preferred or felt most convenient to the particular yes. task. Yeah. Really, really creative. So he has these sort of model systems. He's writing about them in this 1815 book that you mentioned. How do these actually get into the Institution Royale des Jeunes Aveugles? Like, what's the process there? And of course, we mentioned that Louis Braille's famously a student there. So yeah. what happens once these systems move inside the walls of the school? Well, um, as I mentioned, the school was was reestablished in about 1816. Um, and Barbier writes to the director who isn't the least bit interested and brushes him off. Um, for, I mean, and, which is kind of understandable. He's trying to get the school going again. Um, they've already got all these books, you know, with the old method. Um, so a lot of people dump on the, the, the previous director for not having seen the potential, but he really did have other fish to fry at that time. But uh, anyway, that director gets fired um, a few years later in about 1821 um, and is replaced by a new one. And Barbier knows somebody who's on the Conseil d'Administration, which is like the board of directors of the school, who presumably alerts him and says, you know, try again with this guy. He might be more receptive. And he is and he isn't. Um, it's, a, it's a funny story. And, and so the, the, the new director, his name was Alexandre René Pignet. Um, and uh, he's universally thought to be um, a, a much better director than the, the preceding one and much, much, much nicer person to the students. Um, the, the other guy had been rather tough on them. So Barbier writes to him. And Pinier does everything he can not to meet Barbier. He loses the first letter. He does respond to the second letter, but he makes appointments and doesn't bother to show up. Um, he's, he keeps Barbier at a distance, but he doesn't. It's not that he's not interested in the ideas and he does something very smart. He's, he gives the material. So Barbier has obviously sent the tools and some instruction information, and he gives it to one of the senior students. At least I think it's one of the senior students rather than one of the teachers. Um, and says, look, you try it. And if it works, teach it to the other students, which is really smart. I mean, he thought if it's gonna work, then the students have gotta be able to teach it to themselves and, uh, and amongst themselves. And so this student did. I, I have a theory about who the student was and he was like, like Braille, he was a person who went on to uh, later teach at the school. Um, he'd been at the school for quite a long time. He would, so he, he would have been in his late teens at that time. And yes, it worked. It worked. And it could be demonstrated. So um, they do a demonstration for the Conseil d'Administration, um, the, the, the very simple thing. And they've done this. They do this at different points along the way. But you have two students. Um, one of them is sent out to a different room. While that person is out of the room, the, the first student is asked to take dictation of something that they haven't heard or seen before. 
So one of the directors would have given them um, a quotation or just some, some random piece of text. The student writes it down from dictation, and then the student who's been sent out of the room comes back and reads it flawlessly. And everybody's very impressed and they say, great, use it. Um, so Barbier, by the time Barbier finally gets that longed for meeting with Pinier, the students are already using it. Um, that's about the middle of, middle of 1821 and about June. Um, the students are already sort of off to the races with it um, and uh, using it to take notes. And it, it was, I mean, it was so important to them because finally they could take notes. They could take notes that they could read again. They could take notes that they could give to other students and they could read it. Um, they, could, they, they couldn't do that before. The only, they, they, had, they could read printed books and they could do a form of writing that could be read by sighted people, but they, now they could finally write something down and read it back to themselves. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. And the students realized it was huge. And even though the, the, the method had all the problems of, you know, no punctuation, no mathematical symbols and so forth, I, I call it as a proof of concept. It worked. They show it worked. It was a feasibility test. They could, they could demonstrate it and it worked. Um, so that, that was sort of, it really must have landed with quite a crash. Um, they, you know, immediately, of course, not just Braille, but all the students think, oh, well, you know, you could do this with it and you could do that with it and you could try this or try that. Um, but uh, they, they had something and it worked. One thing that is really standing out to me as you're talking, Philippa, is the ways that Barbier's uh, raised point writing system actually was, it was a highly portable system and improved uh, kind of the, the mode or the medium of communication between students. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a very, a very particular and special quality of this yeah. system. Yeah, mind you, that's the, the one thing that, that in, in one way Barbier, because it was so simple, um, it didn't have the, pro didn't meet with the same kind of problems that Braille later met with because you could learn it very quickly. If you already knew your alphabet, you were rated races. So they could learn it very quickly. And so could the sighted teachers mm. because the idea of creating something that only the blind are using, a lot of sighted teachers find that a little threatening. Like, are they writing notes about me in, in there? Um, but no, the, the, the teachers could learn it as easily as the students um, Braille, by comparison, takes a while to learn. Uh, you know, you, it really do, do, does take uh, days, weeks, even months of study to really master Braille. But this thing is just so simple. Um, so it didn't threaten anybody. Nobody felt, okay, um, you know, they can use this, but if need be, we can pick up whatever they've written and read it ourselves. It's, it's quite easy to do. It makes a difference. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about this uh, faded moment that's been <laughs> told, retold, rehashed many times, uh, the first contact between Barbier and Braille. Uh, so when did they first make contact with one another? How did it actually go? And how, um, how is the story that you ended up telling that was rooted in the archival sources that you found different from the story that you first encountered about that initial contact? 
Well, the letter I um, the letters that Barbier wrote to the school are the ones that are still held in the library of the school, and it was it took me a while because um, in that particular library I was not allowed to either photograph or photocopy anything. I had to transcribe it, which took a long time. But I'm in the middle of transcribing a letter that Barbier wrote to the school in 1833. And, you know, I'm just sort of mechanically doing the words and I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's never met Braille. It's 1833 and he's never met Braille. Braille has published his own version four years earlier. And Barbier is asking, um, I hear you have this other version of my system. Would, would it be okay if I could see a copy of that? And somebody sends it to him. And the very next day he writes to Braille saying, wow, that's amazing. That, you know, congratulations. Well done. Um, so they they don't meet right away, but and they don't, he doesn't even find out about the system. So at this point, Braille is 24 years old. And the uh, the library there has about 10 letters that Barbier wrote to Braille. He just, he wrote ordinary letters. He apologizes for not using Braille's system, but he's, he's kind of getting on. And it's, it, as I say, it's not an easy system to learn. So he writes just ordinary letters to Braille that somebody would have had to read aloud to Braille. Braille writes back to him because Braille knows how to write two-sided people. You know, Braille was capable of writing letters to his own parents, for example, back in Kukwe. Um, so they have a correspondence, they meet several times. There's a, a third person, a friend of Braille's who is often part of those, those meetings. Um, and uh, the, the relationship is extremely friendly. Um, they kind of agree to differ about the whole spelling versus phonetics system. Barbier still thinks it needs to be phonetic, you know, so that everybody can, can learn it. Um, but, you know, Braille's moving in a different direction. But they, they don't seem to, the, that particular uh, difference of opinion doesn't seem to have harmed anything. Um, so yeah, they, they, Braille is an adult when they meet. And he's, um, he's actually halfway through modifying his first version to make the second version of Braille, which is the one we have now. Thank you so much. I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how and why you think the story, really the story of the relationship between Barbier and Braille, when they met, the kind of influence that Barbier had on Braille, how that story came to be so distorted, um, mm. and what, based on all of the research that you've done, um, what do you think were some of the motivating factors when you, uh, when you consider the ways that this story has been conveyed? Um, what were some of the, I don't know, narrative appeals of distorting the story in particular ways? Well, the first, the first distortion is why, why Barbier came up with this method at all, this idea that he created it for the military. Um, I traced that back to that very first book that I read um, in 2016 by Pierre-Henri, um, the biography of Braille, Pierre-Henri was, um, was himself blind. He was a professor at the university, um, but 
the materials that Barbier left behind, none of them are accessible to the blind. And he did not, clearly did not see the book written in 1815, had no idea that this one method of writing was, there was a context to it, was part of a whole series of different methods of writing. He just, he, all he knew was that Barbier had created this form of writing um, and he perhaps wondered why. And I'm just gonna read the one sentence that kind of sent everybody off in the wrong direction. This is, this is my own translation from his French. As a former captain of artillery, Barbier had perhaps once felt how useful it could be for officers in the field to be able to write messages in the dark and later read them with their fingers. That's it. He's, he's clearly speculating, saying he might've thought this, it might've crossed his mind. He's not sure that that's what Barbier was doing. He just says, you know, he could have thought that, but he didn't. But everybody's taken that as fact, as if that was exactly what Barbier was doing and has written about it thereafter. And nobody has bothered to go back and say, well, what, you know, what exactly was he doing? What, he, what was he trying to do and who was he trying to reach? Um, because nobody read the book. Um, the other one, the one about uh, the early meeting or early contact between Barbier and Braille when Braille is, is quite young, comes from Pinier himself. So in the 1850s, Pinier writes a short biography of Braille. Um, by this time, Braille has died. Braille dies in 1852. Um, Barbier died in 1841. So they're both dead. Neither of them can contradict anything he says. So he decides, Pinier decides, I'm going to write my version of events. And again, here is the exact words that he wrote. Again, my translation from the French. Louis Braille, like other students, studied the method and with the sagacity that characterized him, indicated to Monsieur Barbier several improvements and resolved certain difficulties with the writing, little problems for which Monsieur Barbier had long sought a solution. Complete fiction, total fiction, didn't happen. Um, there were no, they didn't, change the writing, sort of certain difficulties with the writing. It's like points, like what, there was no way to change it. You either did write, use the, the method and write little little points or you didn't. Um, there wasn't anything that changed about it. Um, it never changed. Um, you notice that, that, that Pinier also doesn't actually say they did this in person. He says, it could have been a letter. I mean, if, if, if in his invention, he doesn't say they actually met because after all, they didn't. He just says that Braille pointed this out to Barbie. And again, people have rushed in and filled in the story and created this dramatic encounter between the saintly little child and the evil captain um, and gone sort of run with that because it's, it, I mean, it makes, a, makes a good story and don't, heavens, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Um, and it's a way better story. It's much, I mean, it's much more dramatic than the, the real story, which is that they quite liked each other and they met when they were adults. Um, you know, that's, that's not so dramatic. So these distortions have obviously affected how we think about Barbier. As you just said, he becomes this villainous figure, right? 
but they also affect how we have come to think about Braille, right? So can you talk us through some of the implications for this distorted story having made its way into the popular imagination? Yeah. Um, well, first, the, the, the one about creating something for the military, it makes it sound as if Braille takes something that was designed for one purpose and uses it for a different purpose for which it was not originally designed. Um, which again adds sort of luster to its name, but is not in fact what happened. Um, so that's that, but that's perhaps a minor problem. I think the other one, the story about the the, the little kid and the the evil captain, is a little more um, changes the story, the narrative quite a lot, because um, what Pinier was trying to do obviously is make Braille look even more precocious than he actually was, that he's able to, to identify all these problems up front and confront the, uh, the inventor with them. But, and, the, and this gets back to why so many stories are written about Braille for children, because Braille as an inventor is portrayed as a child. Well, he, I think, throughout his teenage years, he continued to work away at an improvement to Barbier's system. He certainly started as a teenager, but his first book was published in, um, let me think, 1829. So he's 20 years old. Um, and uh, when it's published. And the system that he created in 1829 is not the system we use now. The, the letters are there. The, the letters of the alphabet, the 40 characters um, of six dots each, they exist. But the, uh, what Braille was trying to do was make it much more flexible and have more uses. So Mathematical symbols, punctuation, and musical notation are, are high up on the list. For those, he has a different system. It involves dashes. Um, the you can the this the uh, eighteen twenty nine book is available page by page on the internet. You can look at it, um, and the the opening stuff you think, oh, this looks familiar, and then you think, wait a second, what's all this stuff with all the dashes? So he created the system with dashes, and he obviously got tested by his his uh, probably his colleagues and, and students at that point, because he's, he transitions from being uh, a student to being a teacher. And they said, we find these dashes too confusing. It's hard to tell the difference between two dots side by side and a dash. And so he spends another eight years working that out. 1837, he finally publishes the second edition, which is the one in which it works. So the Braille, that is used all over the world is the creation of a mature adult. It's not the creation of a teenager. He's created one system, he realizes it's flawed. It's not quite as good as it needs to be. And he works on it and eventually he comes up with the system we have now. So this idea that this precocious little kid comes up with it sort of out of whole cloth um, is, is a problem. <laughs> It's a big problem. And it, it also gives, I mean, in, I think one of the reasons why the uh, so many books are for children is because it, it, 
it, it gives nothing for him to do in later life. I mean, he invents Braille and then he has nothing to do but teach at the school and play the organ for the rest of his life and, and nothing further happens to him. No, he spends a long time coming up with this idea and fighting for this idea as well. I mean, he had a lot of support and a lot of people were wanting or hoping for him to succeed. Um, but he's a mature adult when these things are happening. The system we use is a system that was created by a mature adult, not by a teenage student. This is so interesting. I, I'd like to keep talking a little bit about the narrative that is being constructed here about disability and childhood and precociousness, precocity. Precocity, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think you're right. So uh, there are surely, I can see the wheels in our audience's heads are probably already <laughs> turning here, right? Are there lessons that we should be thinking about when we are consuming or contributing to this larger body of scholarship on disability and disability history? Well, I mean, the first and, and really obvious lesson is read the primary sources. I mean, that, that's for all historians of any kind, anywhere doing anything. Don't just repeat the last thing that somebody said, um, but actually go back and check the primary sources. Um, and, that, and as I say, the 1815 book is on Google Books. Anybody can do this. Another one is this, the cult of heroes. Um, and a very good parallel example, um, a book that I, I really, really admire is uh, the book by Georgina Cleage called Blind Rage, where she talks about Helen Keller being held up as this saintly person who never did anything wrong and, and was always perfect and learned how to read and write and talk and do all these things and you know sort of almost magically. Um, and it's really discouraging if you are visually impaired or visually impaired and hearing impaired um, to try and follow that kind of model. And the same sort of, um, hagiography, saintliness has become attached to Braille. Um, he's rarely depicted as an adult. He's only depicted as a child, a brilliant, precocious child who did this when he was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. That didn't happen. And we, we sort of, he, it's not as, as colorful a story that he had to work on it for 16 years to come up with the version we have eight years to publish his first book and another eight to publish the second, but that's what happened. And the other, a further thing that, that is uh, typical of uh, the history of any kind of invention is the idea that people do it all by themselves. There's even a little book, one of the recent books that's published in France um, and coming out of this meeting, you know, Braille versus Barbie and things like that. And, and uh, Braille is saying to himself, oh, he's you know a, a powerful aristocratic member of the military and I'm just little Louis Braille and I'm all alone. And you think, oh, for crying out loud, no. Um, you weren't alone. Pinier had his back the whole time. Pinier's incredibly supportive. He gives him time to work on his system. He does everything he can to promote it. His, his friends were supportive. Um, they also were very enthusiastic and very helpful. He wasn't this solitary person trying to do something um, that nobody understood. Everybody totally got it and they thought and they supported him to the best of their ability. He wasn't this outlier 
um, and uh, who was laboring a lot alone on his system. You know, I think every time he came up with a new idea, he tested it out on his friends and they either said, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down and keep going. And Pinier was very, very supportive. So he wasn't this, he wasn't a solitary inventor any more than most inventors are solitary. They all depend on other people to test their ideas, to help them, to create materials for them, whatever. So that's, that's that, that, the history of invention. Um, and perhaps, perhaps the other thing is um, the timing is very important. It's just after the revolution. And in the revolution, kind of everything was up for grabs. They were going to, they were going to have um, 10 months in the year with different names. They were going to have, they were going to have a hundred minutes in the hour. They were going to completely revamp time, let alone anything else. They, were, they had um, all sorts of people who thought we're just going to sort of sweep away everything the way it is now, all the traditions, all the conventions, and start from scratch, which is a very interesting time. Um, and so for, for both Braille and Barbier, there was this sense that you could start anew, you could start anew. And, and so Barbier is trying to do that. He's trying to recreate how people write. Um, Braille is trying to recreate how blind people communicate. Um, so that that context adds a certain something to the story that we might easily miss. Yeah, one thing that I was connecting as you were talking, Philippa, both about the history of invention and the myth of like the solitary genius and the reasons why uh, this depiction of Braille as a child prodigy, this like huge emphasis on precocity, um, like the relationship between the two how it's easier to make an argument for kind of solitary genius when you're talking about a child prodigy because someone who's younger um, mm -hmm. is like a less, like a more unschooled mind. Mm -hmm. um, oh, an interesting point. Yes. Interesting. Yes. I see what you mean. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about uh, like something that you asked, Caroline, about kind of the telling of disability history. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about popular disability history um, that's made not for an academic audience, but perhaps for children with disabilities, children without disabilities for more public consumption. There is this attachment to uh, like the figure of the, of the super crip to like use disability studies terminology or even something akin to inspiration porn, um, which is like a crude, a crude way to frame it. But I do think it speaks to um, kind of desires that a more public facing, like a public audience has for a particular kind of disabled hero. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of um, the sort of force that that desire might have on perpetuating particular myths, even if they are disproven by primary sources too. Yeah. Oh, it's a very interesting point. Yes, I mean, the sort of um, the reality is not, does not provide quite as satisfactory a story for that kind of consumption. Um, so I, you know, I feel I'm pouring cold water on all these, these uh, lovely 
uh, dramatic episodes. Um, but uh, yes, it, it, but I mean, Georgina Cleage says, you know, on the other hand, these, these things can backfire on you um, and leave you feeling more helpless because you're not as brilliant as these brilliant people who've gone before you. Definitely. And I think this myth of solitary genius also kind of, uh, it goes against other impulses in dis like in disability studies, but also in disability justice to focus on collaboration and interde interdependence. Mm -hmm. So like upholding stories of like uh, the lone, uh, like the lone inventor uh, yeah. who strikes out on their own um, and doesn't need anyone um, isn't always or often like narratively useful for disabled people actually um, who, I mean, all of us need, need other people work alongside collaborators in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, yeah no, there, there are a huge amount of collaboration. I mean, in my, um, in my husband's work and uh, he spent a lot of time trying to find out about the first important braille writer um, which was created uh, at the School for Blind Students in Illinois um, in the 1890s. And yeah, the, the guy had an idea, but he had to work with a, somebody who was good at materials to realize a prototype and then figure out how to make it ready for a production line because this was the, the it's called the Hall Braille Writer. And it was the first one that you could, was inexpensive to make and you could roll out hundreds of them um, so the students could learn to use them. Um, but that, yeah, huge amount of collaboration went into that uh, with various people bringing different, uh, uh, different techniques and different pieces of knowledge together. Absolutely, that's such a great example. Thank you for that. We should swing back and talk about what happens to Barbier. <laughs> because in most of the histories of the invention of Braille, poor Barbier, who's basically been cast in the role of the foil or the villain for yeah. Braille, basically just drops out of the story as the heroic Braille ascends to you know, exactly. position in the yeah. pantheon or whatever. <laughs> so what actually happens to Barbier you know, for the rest of his life? Yeah, there are 20 more years of it. So um, yes, the, the, the images often have him sort of disappearing from the story like Rumpelstiltskin kind of stomping hard on the floor and just going through. But um, no, he lived for another 20 years and he continued to promote this idea of universal education. Um, his, his theories were uh, unrealistic and in some cases completely untested, but he really believed in it. And at the time, he spent a lot of time trying to get his ideas adopted by what were called salles d'asile. Um, these are nursery schools um, and they were nursery schools for the children of the working classes that were generally set up either as public or charitable institutions. The first examples of them appear in the UK, I think. But at this time in the 1820s, they're being set up in France and around Paris. And he thinks, well, um, the students in those schools, some of them may go on and get a further education, but for some of them, that may be all the education they're going to get. So why don't we give them a simplified form by which they can commit their ideas to paper? Um, and I've got the very thing for you. 
He writes to the Minister of Public Instruction. He writes to every friend he's got in any influential position anywhere to get him to, them to support him. He gets nowhere. Um, they do set up a couple of demonstration projects that were still, I don't think it even happened at the time of his death. Um, one of them was going to be in Paris and the other one in Versailles. But uh, anyway, he, he published many more, um, not really books, more like pamphlets on various uh, sort of refining the method and trying to take a new angle at it. Um, but nothing else sticks. That one system um, that got used by uh, the Institution, uh, Institution Royale was the one system that went on to have a life of its own. And the rest of them all died with him, basically. But he, it seems he remained optimistic to the end. Um, the last letter that I've ever seen of his, which was written about a month or so before he died, He's, it, it's not even clear who he's writing to. It's almost a rough draft of a letter that wasn't sent, but he seems to be writing to a printer with instructions for putting an advertisement into some kind of publication and looking for other places where he can advertise his ideas. So he, he never gave up hope that somebody somewhere would take these ideas and use them. Um, and that, and he also never gave up his utopian version that if everybody could express themselves on paper, then that's not quite that we'd end up with world peace, but he felt that we could be, that, that um, citizens could be better political actors, um, that they, they would be more informed um, and that, uh, that they could do better, that it would end sources of conflict and things like that. So he really, he did have this utopian idea that if everybody was able somehow to express themselves in some form of writing, however simplified, that many of the problems of the world would magically disappear. Um, yeah, so he died in 1841. Uh, he'd been ill for some time. He, in, in some of his late letters, he says, you know, not very well. But I don't actually know what he died of. Thank you. It's, it's really, um, I guess, heartening in a way to know that even though none of his other systems caught on, that he never gave up those ideals, right, and continued mm -hmm. to work toward them. Oh. I mean, he's often depicted as a kind of cranky person. Um, he, he, well, he, and he was a bit odd. Um, you know, this is, you have to be odd to come up with that way of writing. Um, fortunately, it, it worked. Um, but, uh, but people said he was sort of solitary and had no friends. As far as we know, he never married, um, but uh, he had friends. There's, you know, the letters talk about visits and, and all sorts of things. Um, and, and he wrote extensively to other people who were working in the same field and who were interested. Um, and uh, there were a lot of people who, who really thought his ideas were, were very important and were not getting the attention they deserved. He did have his supporters. Um, so he was not, like Braille, he was not isolated. He had friends and he wrote to them. <laughs> Sometimes they probably thought, oh gosh, another letter from Barbier, here we go. Um, because he's, <laughs> he's quite, quite uh, prolific. But anyway, he's not an isolated crank. He, he does try. And, and as I say, in the context, I mean, he, one of, he uses the term in one of his books, emancipation intellectuelle. 
um, which was a which was kind of a marketing ploy because it didn't mean exactly what he wanted it to mean, but it was something that was being discussed at the time. Um, this intellectual emancipation, and so he jumps on the bandwagon. Yes, here we are. I've got a method for it, um, and. Uh, all kinds of, of ways in which he tries to sort of pick up on what other people are doing. And in, in the 1830s, so there's a revolution in the 1830s and New King comes to the throne and um, this, this, there's a feeling that, that sort of somehow democracy will be improved by this. And a, a, lot of, a lot of good promises made at the time of the 1830 revolutions, um, most of which didn't actually pan out, but, um, he, he sort of feels, okay, there's a, you know, there, again, there's an opening here. There are people who care about the same things I care about. There's, there was a huge push for uh, universal education. Absolutely. He was not alone in thinking we've got to find a better way um, to educate people and to extend education to people for, who up until now have been, been unable to, to get an education. Um, He's part of a whole group of people doing that. He's, he's definitely not alone. Philippa, you've done such an incredible job of animating uh, this article uh, for our listeners and kind of taking us beyond the article as well, telling us more about uh, what happened to Barbier uh, in later life. But I, I know, we all know uh, that when we're writing an article, a chapter, what have you, um, that there's always more to say um, that like winds up on the cutting room floor, but you're like itching to tell, to tell everyone. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, was there anything else that you really wanted to say about this story um, that couldn't fit into the article uh, that you haven't already mentioned? How long have you got? Um, <laughs> Love uh, actually, the way I wrote the article, I wrote a much, much longer. I wrote a, as complete a biography of Braille as I, uh, Barbier as I could. From that, I extracted the article. So there's a lot left on the cutting room floor. Um, so the original thing is about 100 pages long. Um, so among other things, um, subordinate characters. The article focuses mainly on Barbier, Braille, and Pinier and their relationships. There are all kinds of other secondary characters who have a role to play here. I mentioned some of these, uh, these people who supported Barbier in his work um, and all the various connections he had um, and lots of little stories about other people who were trying to do similar things to him, um, but uh, didn't, didn't, their ideas didn't go anywhere either. So lots of, lots of characters. There are a whole bunch of characters. There is a big cast of characters, um, only a few of whom got into the article. Um, I've also talked about a lot more context because, yes, the, the article doesn't really give you the whole post-revolutionary context or all the other people who were working on similar things at the same time. So I probably made Barbier sound more isolated than he really is when I'm trying to give the opposite impression um, because I didn't have room to fit in the context. Yes, the article is the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's a lot more to say. Um, there's a lot more to find out. I mean, I, I took it as far as I could up to a certain point, um, but uh, new records become available all the time and new sources of information. And there are some side stories that, that uh, I can usefully explore. 
So um, I need to uh, finish that work too um, of this longer. It may or may not ever see the light of day, but for my own satisfaction, I have to finish the story and do, do it justice. That's really encouraging to hear. Our last question is one that we ask almost all of our guests, which is what's mm-hmm. next for you? What else are you working on? You've mentioned that you will be going down some of these rabbit warrens, which I think <laughs> yes. are Indeed about. they are. Is there more <laughs> that you'd like to say about that or any other projects you would like to well, mention? Yes, I mean, yeah, rabbit warrens. I, I went down such a rabbit warren with um, Barbier's American brother. A whole, oh, oh, we could do an entire interview on, on his, his older brother. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, I, so I, that's the thing to finish. Another uh, sort of subsidiary project, um, which I have already embarked on, because everybody gets their information from Wikipedia. I have, to, I have changed, I've already changed the English and French versions of the Wikipedia story about uh, Barbier. But there are a lot of other cross-references, and so I need to track down all the places where they've got it wrong and fix it. I've written to the Encyclopedia Britannica online um, and some other reference work saying, you know, don't you want to get the real dope on the guy? Um, so not quite those words, but anyway, I'm just sort of telling, telling them that, that there, this, is, this story is incorrect and is a reputable publication. They might want to correct it. Um, and continuing to write the blog. So that's a little place where I can put kind of little histories of little things that I notice um, uh, with a focus on Paris, because it is, it's called Parisian Fields and it's all about Paris. But I guess the other thing is that I like writing biographies. <laughs> um, I have written several others. I wrote a biography of an obscure uh, mid mid 20th century American writer. Um, That also was something that seized me. I'm not quite sure why I had to do that, but somehow I found myself writing it to him, writing to his family, uh, going and visiting his family, visiting his colleagues and uh, to to write a story. Um, I've written biographies of some of my own family members. Um, And uh, so if I'm ever finished with Barbier, um, I think what I would try to do is, is, is write another biography and maybe um, some of these subsidiary characters in the Barbier story themselves would make interesting. There's, there's not a lot known about them and certainly not known in English. Some of these people are, are better known in French, um, and, but their names are, are unfamiliar to an English audience. And I thought there might be something there that uh, some of these other people um, who are also interested in universal education and things like that. There's a lot, a lot of stuff there that, that hasn't really, that I know of, been, been fully explored. I mean, a few, there, I'm not by any means the only person writing about these people, but there's not a lot out there. And certainly not for, I, um, not for popular audience. Uh, there are some academic works on some of these stories, but as you probably realize from writing, from reading the article, I'm not really an academic writer. Um, I made my living for many years as what's called a plain language writer. Um, and so that's the way I write. I like to write so as many people as possible can understand what I'm talking about. So I think there are a number of stories that perhaps are locked away in academia that uh, could use the same approach. 
I wholeheartedly agree. And I, ha I want to particularly commend you for doing that legwork of going after the Wikipedia article and Britannica and so forth, because I think you're right that often we, you know, produce our research work and we sort of expect, oh, it will trickle into these places. But it may take decades for that to happen, if ever, right? And so I really, this is actually a really important lesson, I think, for many of us to take, which is that when we do find this new material, it can potentially be incumbent on us to go out and make those changes in those popular reference works to make sure that it has the impact publicly that we hope that it has, right? So yeah, and I mean, it's 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 easy to dump on Wikipedia because there is a lot of rubbish there, but they do have rules, and the rules say that it has to be an original story and that there must be no conflict of interest, but what they really want is connection to actual sources. Um, and you often get a banner at the top of a Wikipedia article saying this, this story needs more support, it needs more references. Um, so, you know, they, they, I think they're, they, they, the people who run Wikipedia, I think their heart's in the right place. I mean, there are all sorts of cranks out there who are trying to pump out misinformation, but, for an academic, it is actually a place to set the record straight on certain things and to link them to actual reliable sources. So the stuff on Wikipedia, I've, I've linked it to, not only to my own article, but I've linked it to that 1815 publication that's online. Um, so people can go and see for themselves. And Wikipedia is often a useful place to start because, because of the links to reputable uh, sources. So uh, yes, I mean, I, I think I used to hold up, hold my nose about Wikipedia, but um, I have since written a bunch of articles. Oh, there, there are things that came out of the blog. I found out about some things that came out of the blog and I thought, you know, there's no Wikipedia article on that. Why don't I put one in? Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a little, it's, a, it's a little difficult to, to get your head around the technology at first and the coding and things like that. But after a while, it becomes quite easy. I think it's well worth the effort, yeah. Mm. Oh yeah, because that's where people are going to get their information. Right, and we, I mean, Caroline and I have interviewed um, like public, public facing historians who do that work in a wide variety of uh, mediums, but we've, we've never really touched on the importance of doing public history through Wikipedia, which is like, uh, it's often the primary, the primary source that a lot mm -hmm. of people go to to access information when they're asking questions about historical figures. And yeah. it's incredibly important work. And, I, and the, other, the other thing, uh, just a, a, a little sort of footnote, um, I, I had to, to fix the, photo, the, 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 the image that was on Wikipedia. So if you Google Shop Babier, you'll see two main images. One of them is of a man in a dark suit, a youngish man, dark hair, dark suit, um, with a sort of white shirt. And the other one is an older guy with a sort of comb forward hairstyle and a very, very elaborate outfit on because he's wearing the order of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's, he's not Charles Babier. He's somebody called Hercule de Serre, um, who somebody, because I mentioned Barbier's, well, maybe I didn't mention, Barbier's full name was Barbier de la Serre. When he went to, to uh, the United States, he became known just as Charles Barbier, and he dropped the de la Serre bit. But so somebody going through old pictures saw it, de Serre, oh, that must be Charles Barbier de la Serre. Well, no, it's somebody else. 
completely different guy. And it's being used in academic publications and all sorts of things. And you think nobody checks their sources, but that's just me. That is another great cautionary tale. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Philippa. This has been such an incredible conversation. And we're just so honored to have been able to speak with you about your work. And we can't wait to read, watch, listen to whatever is next. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.